Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Georgia State University researchers have studied a web-based app designed to advance communication skills of children with developmental disorders. And the results are promising showing the potential for worldwide use. Plus, what do you do with the $9 million gift from, from philanthropist Mackenzie Scott? We'll ask the folks with the Healthcare Georgia Foundation. And in just a moment, the highly anticipated Fulton County Jail Population Review study is out. It's related to the county leasing Atlanta's detention center and what folks say they could do other things with. And then some Fulton County commissioners want to defund a city of Atlanta diversion program called PAD. We've had them on numerous times. So might have something to do with PAD officials opposed to the county leasing the center's the city's detention center, and instead, again, they want more resources for diversion programs. These important community conversations are coming up, but first this. Some metro Atlanta counties are already planning for early voting this Saturday after a judge allowed it for last week. As Raul Bali reports, it's not clear if state officials will appeal the ruling. In court, state lawyers argue that Georgia law does not allow for Saturday voting within two days of a state holiday, in this case, the two-day Thanksgiving holiday. But lawyers representing Senator Raphael Warnock and other Democratic allies said the law does not apply to runoffs, and the judge agreed. After the ruling, Republican challenger Herschel Walker's campaign said Democrats, quote, just moved the goalpost in the middle of the game. Speaking at a Sunday event for Senator Warnock, Democratic Congressman Hank Johnson backed the decision. Oh, it's going to help hugely for Warnock supporters as well as any other voter who may have a different persuasion. Heavily Democratic DeKalb and Fulton counties have already announced times and locations for in-person voting this Saturday. There's also Sunday voting, including in Clayton, Cobb, DeKalb, Fulton, and Gwinnett counties. Mandatory in-person early voting for all counties runs from Monday the 28th to Friday, December 2nd. Raul Bally, WABE News. Meanwhile, Democrats and Republicans are pouring resources into their turnout operations. As we hear from WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass, there are just over two weeks left to get voters back to the polls for that Senate runoff. The Republican National Committee and the Senate Leadership Fund say that together they'll have about 500 paid staffers working to turn out votes for Republican Herschel Walker, plus 80 campaign staffers in the field. The SLF inked a deal with Governor Brian Kemp to deploy his turnout operation. Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock's campaign says they're adding about 300 paid staffers, plus new field offices. They say they'll have 900 staffers on the ground and knock more doors in 
the runoff than during the general election. Georgia's turnout rate dropped since the last midterms. Campaigns now have a short window to get voters back to the polls and try to activate potential supporters who stayed home the first round. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. State officials are asking the Georgia Supreme Court to block a judge's ruling striking down Georgia's most recent abortion law. The state's emergency petition for a stay comes as the state is also pursuing an appeal in the case, as we hear from Jess Mador. As the appeal moves forward, AG Chris Carr's office is asking the judge to block Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney's ruling last week throwing out HB 481. The state's ban on abortion after six weeks of pregnancy took effect in July. Since the judge overturned the ban, Georgia's 14 abortion clinics could once again schedule patients beyond six weeks, and clinics around the Atlanta metro area are reporting an influx of appointment requests. It's unclear when the state Supreme Court would take up the AG's appeal or its request for a stay to reinstate the six-week ban. Jess Mador, WABE News. And how many times have we heard the following? This Thanksgiving holiday travel season will be one of the busiest on the record. You heard that last year. That's according to Motoring Group AAA, and Christopher Austin tells why. AAA says it estimates the number of Georgians traveling from the 23rd through the 27th this year will be on par with highs from 2005. More than 1.5 million people on the roads, more than 110,000 by plane. For both roads and airports, the advice is to be early. For the already typically busy Atlanta highways, Monday through Wednesday are expected to be even busier than normal, especially in the early afternoon. Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson Airport, the world's busiest, has a standing reminder to arrive two hours early and check TSA wait times online. Christopher Alston, WABE News. And finally. Patterson, who fumbled the last time he touched it. Cordero Patterson has a seam. Patterson splits it. Goodbye. Cordero Patterson, the ninth time in his NFL career. <laughs> 103 yards on a kickoff return for a touchdown. The Falcons' Cordell Patterson. Yes, that was fun to watch. By the way, besides helping the Falcons beat the Bears 27-24, Patterson also set a league record with his ninth kick return for a touchdown. And now Atlanta has five wins and six losses. I predicted seven, so who knows. But the rest of their division, the NFC South, is struggling, and so the Falcons are right behind first-place Tampa Bay. Atlanta travels to Washington to take on the Commanders. This coming Sunday, you're listening to Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Real Scott. 
Fulton County Commissioners reviewed a proposed budget for 2023 at last week's meeting. And one of the line items that stuck out to commissioners was this $400,000 for the Policing Alternatives and Diversion Initiative, also known as PAD. Now, here's what Commissioner Bob Ellis had to say. PAD, to me, is a program. It's an Atlanta program. It was a pilot for us. Um, You know, to me, they should fund that and we should pull that $400,000 out and they want to continue to do it. They can do it. Ellis's remarks come as Fulton County prepares to start its lease of the Atlanta City Detention Center, a move that PAD has publicly opposed while calling for increased support and funding for diversion and other wraparound services. Returning to Closer Look now is Moki, Moki Macias. She's the executive director of PAD. Welcome back. Thank you, Rose. It's a pleasure. Let's begin with last week's Fulton County Commission meeting. Your reaction when you first heard discussion of the commission possibly or suggesting that they pull funding from PAD. Yeah, well, you know, I, I will say, you know, I, I think it was disturbing for for our organization, um, mostly because, you know, there's a certain irony to discussing jail overcrowding, to discussing the horrific con- conditions that are currently at Fulton County Jail as a result of understaffing. Um, and then in basically the same breath, also discuss cutting funding to one organization among many that provides direct critical services to people who have been kept out of that very same jail. Now, Commissioner Ellis went on to say it was a pilot program. They funded you, but now this is, and quote, a city of Atlanta program. But it, this program, one might argue this program, Pat, while yes, it's based in the city of Atlanta, but you all help folks that could come from anywhere in Fulton County, correct? Sure. So, so you know, I think we've gotten a lot of attention recently over the last few years because we receive calls through the City of Atlanta 311 line in order to deflect people from police contact altogether. But what we started out with and what we continue to do every day is actually provide a resource to the Atlanta Police Department as well as other law enforcement agencies, including MARTA and the Georgia Tech Police Department, to be able to divert pre-arrest from both ACDC, the city detention center, and Fulton County. Now, the important thing to recognize is that about 50% of all bookings that come into Fulton County Jail Mm -hmm. are actually generated by the Atlanta Police Department. Mm -hmm. And because of that, uh, the, the county, as well as our DA, our solicitor general, and our equivalent partners at the city, as well as the public defender's offices in both this, the city and the county, they made a decision in 2017 to join together in the law enforcement assisted diversion initiative. And that had, we provide the direct services to people who are diverted, but this initiative has been a joint effort of the city and the county from its inception because of the recognition that in fact, people policed mm-hmm. by the Atlanta Police Department end up in Fulton County Jail. And therefore, any diversions that we can make out of that jail for people who are experiencing mental health concerns or substance use concerns or navigating extreme poverty is going to be a benefit to Fulton County in order to address the overcrowding concerns, but also to more effectively prevent the kinds of activities that people engage with because they simply are too poor or they are struggling and need basic resources. Have you been in communication with either Commissioner Ellis, and he wasn't the only one, there were some other commissioners 
Have you talked to anybody about this, about why they would even want to defund PAD? We haven't yet had a direct conversation. Um, I'm looking forward to the opportunity to, to speak with any of the commissioners about our work. My hope is that we'll be able to present at the upcoming uh, commissioners meeting on December 7th to just share our data and to share a little bit about the people that we have diverted in 2022 and previously, and just how important it is to provide the critical services that we do in order to keep people out of jail, whether that is for emergency shelter, whether that is for food, transportation assistance, assistance getting IDs. We're talking about the basic sort of life-saving services that we're able to provide as a result of this funding. Director, I want to ask you this because you all, you all, you being the leader of this organization, you have come out in opposition of the city of Atlanta leasing its detention center to Fulton County for the sheriff's department. Because you say you could better use that the resources for diversion programs and because of all of these studies, which we're going to get to in just a moment, that also reveal that some of the a lot of folks, hundreds of folks, shouldn't even be inside the jail to begin with because they would benefit from these wraparound services, do you think this is, through your lens, could this be some type of punishment or retaliation for you, being the director, being very vocal about that agreement between Fulton County and the city? You know, I think it is important just to mention that we have been squarely in the middle of this debate about whether expanding jail cells is the appropriate um, response to the conditions currently at Fulton County Jail. Um, And we've been squarely in the middle of it because what we know is that diversion is not being utilized to the extent that it could be. Both the police department as well as our prosecutorial partners could divert more people to PAD in order to address some of the front end challenges of people going into the system that really actually just need resources. And so, you know, it has been really important for us to to very clearly state that we believe there are better solutions and we believe there are solutions that that the prosecutors, that the public defenders, that the courts can actually make very important progress on in a very short amount of time that would address these concerns. So, you know, for us, we had to state clearly what our position was because we know that there are people in Fulton County Jail today mm-hmm. who should not be there and should be supported. You know, I, I very much hope that our efforts alongside many other organizations to, to try and uh, highlight the systemic solutions that are needed would not then be cause to, um, to move away from the progress that our community has made in actually supporting these kind of in- interventions. But do you think it was this is the timing is interesting. I mean, they are going over the budget and four hundred thousand dollars for your organization could potentially be pulled. And again, your organization, you being the director, executive director, has been in opposition of that agreement. Do you think that that's just a coincidence or you think that you're being your organization is being targeted? Well, you know, I, I can't speak to their motivations. I will say that. You know, we've the funding that has come through Fulton County has come through our uh, county Department of Behavioral Health. 
um, we've been able to leverage the support that we've received from the county um, to attract federal dollars to this work that directly supports people dealing with substance uh, addiction. We've been able to attract the state Department of Behavioral Health um, to partner with us that are now funding us at even a higher level than Fulton County. Um, and we've been able to, to rely on the city who funded us $4.5 million this year to be able to expand our staffing so we can provide response um, you know, it, it, as quickly as possible to any number of calls. Mm -hmm. So for us, you know, we will continue to do everything that we can and to serve at the pleasure of the public who is calling for alternate solutions. Now, I, I can't speak to the to the the rationale mm -hmm. that our elected officials may have, um, but I do know that we will continue to provide the the services, and we'll continue to show up, um, and we will continue to say to to say that we believe there are better solutions, much better than jail expansion, and we want to be part of that of that solution. Okay, speaking of solutions, this the Justice Policy Board, which was responsible for the jail population review, there was a committee, and now the committee chairs, co-chairs, Judge Robert McBurney, we all know he's been busy, and Councilmember Dustin Hillis. And there was, to the board, their main recommendation was this, I'm going to read this quote, quote, continue its work so we can press towards policy recommendations that address ways to reduce jail population by increasing diversions and accelerating case flows, all while maintaining a focus on positive public safety outcomes. Long-term jail population reviews have achieved just such results in other areas, and there is no reason to believe that once we have standardized our data, we cannot do the same here. What does that say to you? Well, we've gotten to be a part of this process alongside many stakeholders and it has been complicated, it has been difficult, but I think what we all came out of the process with was an understanding that our, our system stakeholders and our community-based stakeholders have to be in alignment um, in order to properly diagnose what some of the challenges are. Mm -hmm. And that in fact, there are we are aware of challenges related to particular policies as well as practices uh, that if they were improved, we know they would reduce the length of stay for people in jail. They would reduce the number of people who are in jail who have behavioral health needs and would be much better served elsewhere. Um, and it would improve the ability for people who have charges, uh, you know, to actually hear the charges against them and respond to those charges, mm -hmm. which is sort of the bedrock of our justice system. What's next for you all in terms of still echoing your opposition to this and also with Fulton County to make sure that you can get your $400,000, hopefully not eliminated from the budget? Sure. Thank you. So, you know, we, we will be, um, we hope to present to Fulton County Board of Commissioners in a couple weeks. We will continue to share our data and our information about the impact that we are making. But I think most importantly for us, uh, you know, I just want to acknowledge that uh, at the end of the day, we need to be very clear about what PAD's role is in this, right? That in fact, it is not, PAD does not initiate diversions. That mm -hmm. was one of the most concerning uh, comments that I heard. In fact, the 
law enforcement partners, including the prosecutors, initiate diversions to PATH. We're able to accept diversions at pre-arrest or we're able to accept diversions at first appearance or when somebody has already spent time in jail. And in fact, we have done so throughout this entire year. Mm -hmm. um, we have 295 diversions um, this year and we're going to we're just going to keep our nose to the grindstone. We're going to continue doing the work that we know actually makes our communities more safe and more stable because we are investing in people who need support. So 295 people this year in this calendar year. But in essence, you're saying we can only help those folks who are going to be referred to us. That's right. So people can connect us to individuals through 311 and avoid police contact altogether. Um, but most importantly, when law enforcement is engaging with somebody or when the prosecutor's offices identify somebody who is experiencing a mental health need or substance use need, there's an opportunity to connect that person to our offices. And we look forward to that. You know, I think what's really important here is also recognizing the work from the jail population review identified that there were 3,462 bookings that could have been diverted in mm -hmm. 2022. Moki Macias is the executive director of the Policing Alternatives and Diversion Initiative, also known as PAD. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Important community conversations that we've been having. We're going to stay on top of this. Thank you. Thank you so much. And from WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. A web-based app could be promising for advancing the communication skills of children with developmental disorders, and especially in low- and middle-income countries. Now, this was part of the conclusion reached in a recent study co-authored by Georgia State University researchers. It's a self-guided app designed to be used by caregivers in South Africa. There's a backstory to this, so let's find out more. Joining me now from Georgia State University, Marianne Romsky, Regents Professor in Georgia State's Department of Communication and Department of Psychology. Professor, thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Glad to be with you. Before we take a deeper dive into this app, I want to get that backstory. I understand this goes back to a 2002 trip to South Africa. Uh, it did, um, which is where we started our uh, relationship with the University of Pretoria and the Center for Augmentative and Alternative Communication. Uh, it was a trip uh, sponsored by uh, GSU's uh, College of Arts and Sciences, and um, it gave us the opportunity to uh, see what uh, they were doing to help a range of, of individuals who have difficulty communicating through speech as the primary means. And then um, also to, uh, to start to establish a, a collaboration with them, which uh, we have continued for quite a long time. Uh, what stood out to you as you, were, you all were observing some of these therapies or practices, and let me know if I'm not using the correct terminology because I want to make sure I am, but what stood out to you in terms of some of the, the, these practices or therapies that they were using or researching? So I think the, the um, biggest uh, issue that uh, stood out to us was, um, and it stands out to the South African speech language pathologists and educators as well, is that there is a limited number of 
uh, clinicians who provide services mm -hmm. and um, to a very large population. And so there is a the service provision is limited uh, compared to what we have here in the United States, uh, which is a much more uh, much, I would call it much rich, richer uh delivery of service, mm -hmm. uh, more consistent and closer in time uh, weekly, while in South Africa, um, monthly, once a month. Wow. And mm -hmm. is that due to, Professor, just some social economic barriers or just uh, a small percentage of providers or, or, you know, those resources? What's the main reason? I, I think that it's... Uh, an integration of all those issues. I think first, there are a very uh, relatively limited number of uh, service providers given the um, the number of children that there are to serve. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that probably is a um, somewhat of a result of earlier apartheid uh, mm -hmm. issues that were there. And then um, I believe that on top of that, the families and the caregivers of the children uh, live in uh, relatively rural areas where it is difficult to have transportation. They have to come to a tertiary care hospital uh, that might be located a good distance from them and um, to receive the care. Uh, so I think there's a number of issues that uh, play into mm -hmm. why that is the case. I think there uh, at the University of Pretoria at the Center for Augmentative and Alternative Communication, they are working very hard to educate the next generation mm -hmm. of speech language clinicians. Uh, and they have not only face-to-face -face programs, but distance programs where they are educating um, individuals throughout uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And was the focus primarily on then also not only those those low income areas, but I'm also guessing rural populations as well. Rural populations in the um, you know outside of the city, but even within Pretoria, and then Pretoria is only an hour north of Johannesburg. Uh, clearly, um, lots of disparity in terms of where the people are living, and then. Um, how easy it is for them to access service in a um, a more centralized area. Uh, so a combina again, a combination mm -hmm. uh, where the infrastructure uh, just isn't uh, as strong mm -hmm. uh, to support them. So let's talk about this app because you're saying that this app, even though we're talking about intervention for or, or therapy once a month for. Is it 30 minutes? Did I read that correctly? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 30 minutes. And what does that consist of? Can you can you tell our, our so listeners? It consists of working with the child, not working with the family, hmm. uh, the parent. It's it's all focused on the child and the child's uh, communication difficulties. Um, and so uh, adding the parent in, as we do here in our work in the United States, um, adds a dimension to uh, helping uh, be able to uh, give the parent some control and support in terms of how educated they are about the child's communication development and mm -hmm. what's important. How are you all able then to research or thoroughly analyze that app and what 
I guess, what were your metrics you're using? Because also, too, when you talk about a web-based app, and this is a whole other question you can get to, I'm wondering about just infrastructure barriers mm-hmm. as well. So let's talk about your analysis of the app. What were you all looking, how were you all sort of, I guess, measuring that? Well, first of all, we were uh, lucky enough to have um, a grant support from the National Institute of of, um, Deafness and Other Communication Disorders and the Fogarty International Center at the National Institutes of Health uh, to to do the work. And um, the app, we started out by having focus groups in South Africa of both caregivers and speech language clinicians to uh, gain their input about what might work. And one of the things when you were saying web-based app, we initially thought we would be doing this on their cell phones. Mm. However, data uh, is very, very expensive mm-hmm. uh, on in South Africa. And so the families and the clinicians thought we would be better off using a tablet. So we provided every family with a tablet that had the web-based app on it. Uh, And um, the app itself is divided into three topics about communication uh, and um, modeling communication and uh, the responding to the child's communication. And um, we presented that to the families um, and uh, taught them how to access the uh, material on the app. And every month when they came in for their um, weekly, their monthly session, Mm -hmm. we uh, downloaded the data that was automatically collected on the app during that month. So we had data about when they used it, how Mm -hmm. often they used it, what parts of it they used. uh, And, um, and then we also had a survey that they conduct, they completed every week on the app that uh, told us about their perceptions Mm -hmm. about how the child was doing and how they viewed the materials. I have a question from a listener that wants to know, can you talk about which which particular developmental disabilities are we talking about, particularly we're talking about with, with where language or, or, you know, spoken language is the, the main issue here? Is that what you're talking about? I think that's what the listener's trying to say. Yeah, thank you for that uh, question. We are, um, yes, we're working with children who have what we would call significant developmental disorders, neurodevelopmental disorders, and that includes children with a lot of different etiologies to their diagnosis. That could include children uh, with autism, children with cerebral palsy, children with Down syndrome, uh, children with fragile X, children who have a um, what would be called an unknown etiology. Uh, they haven't figured out what exactly it is. So a very broad range of children, but they all have one identifying characteristic, which is they are not developing uh, spoken language skills. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the parents were able to say they saw some, whether it was slight or significant results here based on this, this interaction with the app and the, and the child? Well, the parents were the primary um, participants for us, and they reported that they uh, saw the app change their child's um, communication skills from being uh crying and Mm -hmm. uh, vocalizing to Mm. being able to use some words. Uh, And um, we also assess the children 
Hmm. And the children showed some gains on st uh, standard measures, uh, which we think might have been uh, a underestimate of what they uh, could show if we had used perhaps a broader uh, set of uh, measures for them. So, Professor, let me ask you this. Based on this and the research you all did, and we, we understand when you think of, of certain nations, but you also say, hey, because believe it or not, folks who are listening, you know, there are some parts here in the United States that have mm -hmm. the same issues as a small nation in South Africa, a small country in South mm -hmm. Africa. So let's talk about how it can be used here. So um, I want to start by saying, so this work was all done before the pandemic. Um, mm. We were doing this uh, where we were, uh, our goal was to adapt uh, parent-mediated child language intervention studies that we had already done here in the United States in, in Atlanta um, and shown significant effects for the development of children's communication skills. And so we used that as our foundation to develop what we did in South Africa. Uh, but well before um, the, uh, the pandemic mm -hmm. began, and as the pandemic began, we certainly, we had already talked a little bit about this, but we realized that we really need to bring this back here to the mm -hmm. United States. We'll have to do some adaptations to it because it is culturally and linguistically uh, set up for South Africa. So the the videos that we have in mm -hmm. there, the, um, the language skills we have in there are all set for the South African environment. And so we will have to readjust mm -hmm. to come back to the U.S. Uh, and we're looking to some grant support uh, we're applying for to uh, to see if we can do that again here. Professor, I'm, I'm curious, the age group, do you do you all know the age group of the children? Did it vary? Mm -hmm. We're talking about three to six years of age hmm. um, in South Africa. If we were to do this here in the United States, we'd be talking about early intervention, which mm -hmm. would be before the age of three. Uh, in the United States, early intervention is from birth to three. And so we would be talking about that very early period. Uh, the earlier you can start the intervention, the better for all children, no matter in South Africa or here. In South Africa, they, uh, our colleagues at uh, Pretoria felt that uh, going lower than three would be uh, difficult for them, that they really don't have the that isn't the way they typically have provided services. And you know, Professor, before I let you go, because I've, I we actually did a segment on this some years ago on this program that there was a, a, a shortage of speech language pathologists in this nation. Mm -hmm. You mean here in the U.S.? Yes. Yes, well, there is. And the, um, the American Speech Language Hearing Association just held its uh, meeting in New Orleans this past week. And... Um, there are, we are a very large organization, over 200,000 members mm -hmm. uh, who are certified speech language pathologists and audiologists, uh, but we are still short in terms of the number of um, speech language pathologists uh, needed to provide services to uh, both children and adults. Is also when you talk about, because this, this is a, it can be a costly service that that families need is that also because i know there's been some issue about you work in a public sector you work in a private sector i mean that's i'm not going to get you caught up in the politics of that but uh, <laughs> is it also that because folks that can afford it can can 
you know, have those resources one-on-one or on a regular basis for their, for their child as opposed to some households who just simply can't afford it? Um, I don't. So I think it's Medicaid would pay for the speech language services. And we do have across the United States programs for early intervention. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Georgia, we have Babies Can't Wait, Mm -hmm. which is a program from birth to three. uh, And the child should be able to receive services through that program. And then once they turn three, uh, the public school system is responsible to provide uh, services and supports to the children for communication. Um, And so the services are available, but um, I would say some families don't uh, quite understand that they are available to them or know how to seek them out. Do you think Um, many, many households know that? I I, I know I I can emails popping up. I don't know what they say, but I imagine some folks didn't even didn't even know that, that the public schools uh, are supposed to pick that up. Uh, The public schools have been required to do this since um, the original 94-142 was passed in 1975 Mm -hmm. to provide eligibility for all children to be served uh, for special needs that they might have, including communication disorders, Mm -hmm. and has been reauthorized multiple times. Uh, So the schools are responsible. There is a Georgia advocacy office Mm -hmm. that does provide supports for families. But again, you are right that families have to know this uh, Mm -hmm. and um, know where they can obtain it. Wow, there's more to this, and we want to stay on top of this. Marianne Romsky, Regents Professor in Georgia State's Department of Communication, Department of Psychology. Thank you so much. Fascinating discussion about this app. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the work that you all are doing to help people. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Rose, for having me, and uh, happy to come and talk about some of those broader issues because they're really important. Absolutely. Thank Thank you. you. Good luck with trying to handle screaming parents. Let's <laughs> closer look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Here's a question. What would you do if philanthropist Mackenzie Scott, no relation, uh, recognized your organization and said, you know what? Here is $9 million. I want to gift to the program because of the work you all are doing. What would you do? Well, there's only one person that can answer that, and that is the president and CEO, Kristen, Christy Klein Davis. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. She is with the, make sure I got it right now because I got it wrong, I think, and someone sent me the Healthcare Georgia Foundation. You know, y'all send emails and get it, it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I love the origin story. Uh, how did you hear about the $9 million gift from philanthropist Mackenzie Scott? Well, we got an email. Um, you know, Mackenzie Scott has a different way of giving. So I'm learning. Philanthropists. <laughs> sure. So if, if people are you know aware of how foundations typically work, typically organizations submit grant applications and then there's a review process and they find out um, whether or not they're getting getting an award for work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Mackenzie works differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Mackenzie has a team of people which is it's kept close, close, kept close to the chest um, who's doing this work, who look across the country and do a pretty rigorous set of background research to look for organizations that 
have strong leadership, um, board and staff level, have excellent relationships with community, are known for listening to community voice, um, has, have a history of work mm-hmm. in the community and what they assess to have potential for a transformative, a transformative future and to create transformative change. Let's back so, up. A, oh, go ahead. Yeah. So you, you got the email and we got the email. And then did you have, a... we got the email and it said, we're giving you $9 million. So that was, that was a fun call to my board chair. I have to say. And if you are a board chair, you're yeah. like, oh, that's good. You're in good standings there. Uh, let's back up a minute because the creation yeah. of your foundation was rather yeah. unique because it was created due to a settlement uh, with the that's Blue right. Cross and Blue Shield. Briefly tell our listeners what that was about. That's right. So this was back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And this is actually happening across the country. So there were hospitals and insurance companies that had been not for profit in their status and became for profit. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it kind of broke down from there what happened. But essentially, if you're going from being not profit to for profit, you can't just take all your assets with you because you amass some assets Mm -hmm. due to your nonprofit tax status. So we were created when Blue Cross Blue Shield of Georgia went from being a not-for-profit insurance company to a for-profit insurance company. Um, A chunk of their assets Mm -hmm. was then taken to create a private entity that would fulfill the nonprofit mission. So we are not connected to the insurance company. We're not Mm -hmm. connected to state government. We're entirely independent. And you all, in in a nutshell, in a sense, you all look for initiatives and programs that obviously have a health care, health and wellness scope. Yep. Yep. So we are interested in creating a Georgia in which all people have the opportunity to attain their fullest potential for health. So we're looking for where there's disparities in health. We know that in Georgia, we have some of the greatest medical advancements mm. that this country has seen. We have we have great research happening, obviously. We just heard about some of it. But then we also have people that can't get a strep test when they need a strep test. Right. That can't get you know a basic physical when they need a basic physical. So what we're really interested in doing is looking at how the healthcare and health broadly mm-hmm. systems serve or do not serve people and try and narrow those gaps. So really try and find ways to shift systems so that people can have access to what they need to live healthy lives. And you just heard I had a conversation. We were talking about an app that to work with kids with developmental disabilities. Mm -hmm. But you all, it's not, it could be physical, it could be mental. You're looking for, you all are wanting to partner with and help support just in a range of anything that deals with, that's connected to our quality of life as it relates to health and wellness. What are some of those initiatives that you you all have been involved in that you Mm -hmm. think highlight the work and the mission mm-hmm. of the Healthcare Georgia so, Foundation? The role that we really take is trying to really bridge gaps between sectors, between communities, between groups, so that communities can develop solutions. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we, this is $9 million. We know how much the government spends every year on, you know, health programs and on programs to support people. $9 million is a drop in the bucket. But we also know that the money that is being spent isn't always closing those gaps Mm -hmm. that we see. Um, I want to name an initiative that we're just closing that was called the Two Georgias Initiative. Mm -hmm. So that initiative worked in 11 counties across the state of Georgia, where our support was for cross-sector collaborations in those counties to come together. So groups of educators, doctors, um, businessmen, politicians, community members themselves would come to the table, would name, here's the most pressing things that are facing our community, and would develop work together to develop solutions to those to those problems. 
So our money was really spent bringing people together and uplifting people's ability to create the change that that they want to see. And then, of course, to create connections. So if we have work happening in Rome, Georgia, that's similar to work happening in Macon, Georgia, how can we uplift both of those pieces of work so that they can communicate with each other and actually make even more change and potentially elevate that change to be statewide? And so and that's a lot. And so with <laughs> with this nine million dollars that you all this gift that you receive from Mackenzie Scott, mm-hmm. are you going to focus on in particular areas or you want do you want to try to get some new initiatives or go ahead and add to some of the existing projects and initiatives that you have going on? I think it'll be a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mentioned that we got this this great email at the very end of September. Um, and we didn't know it was coming. So we are in the process of making our plans right now. I will say, I think all best work evolves and builds on the work of the past. So we're certainly learning from the histories, the history of our work and our evolution. Um, I do know that our work will continue to be statewide. Our work will continue to center equity. We know that across you know, healthcare and health broadly, mm-hmm. the same groups of people tend to have the biggest disparities. And that's our people of color, particularly black and Latinx, that's people who are lower income, and that's people who are living in rural communities. So really looking at how we think intersectionally about some of those groups and really try and develop solutions in partnership um, with community that close those gaps. Do you have a focus, and it sounds like you you all have, you can fund a lot of different initiatives here, but do you have a focus if it's grassroots, if it's research? You know, I imagine that you also want to make sure you're partnering with folks that are, as they say, meeting people where they are. That's right. Our, so our focus, I love this question, is actually on bringing all of those groups together. So we believe that to make progress, we need grassroots. We need the academicians. We need health care providers. We need everyone to be part of the solution. So our goal is to create spaces and ways for, for those best solutions to bubble up when mm-hmm. those groups are able to come together. So we're, we're looking to do whatever we can to get those groups together. And how soon are you looking to imagine people pull over? We got to send, <laughs> send an email like think, McKenzie Scott did. Yeah, no, I think we will start rolling. We will start rolling out some new programming probably mid 2023. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did have a strategic plan that went 2018 to 2023. So we're winding down some excellent work. The Two Georges Initiative is an example of that. Mm-hmm. Also some really excellent, excellent work in maternal and infant health, some excellent work in behavioral health that you know helps contribute to the Parity Act um, passing last year. So looking at getting that to the finish line and also what does it mean to evolve that work into a next version of ourselves it is pretty nice to go into a new i don't know if your fiscal year is a calendar year or july 1 to july 1 like <laughs> ours but i know it's nice to just go into any year with a nine million dollar gift how are you all funding and is this the largest single gift you've gotten from uh, i guess a, a private like mckenzie's yeah, absolutely. This yeah. absolutely is. Um, yeah. This is actually the first time we've received a donation of this sort. And it's our hope that we can, again, in partnership with those that we have the privilege of working with, demonstrate that giving us that kind of a transformative investment actually makes transformative change in the community. So our hope is that perhaps we can use this to attract additional resources to Georgia in the future. Well, we they say we might be going into a recession and we're in inflation right now. Uh, have you all seen a, a slowdown, though, since we've been in this pandemic and some of the 
your your I don't know how you track it. I don't know if you have just private, mostly big donations or smaller ones. Have you seen a, a little bit of a decrease since the so pandemic? So we actually we actually don't um, rely on donations to to fund our work. So we work off of our endowment. So we have an endowment from the settlement that we spoke about. Um, but a group called the Center for Effective Philanthropy just studied that issue and was mm-hmm. actually looking less at the pandemic, but more about do these gigantic <laughs> monetary gifts slow down other investments? Mm-hmm. And the good news is um, that they haven't. Um, they haven't slowed down other investments. So from that national look, it, it does seem that investments are not slowing down. Mm-hmm. We know that the pandemic also heightened awareness of yeah. a lot of the inequities that are faced by so many you know, people in the U.S. and Georgians are, are no different. So I think that that has also spurred some people to continue with their giving. And you mentioned the Georgia's recent uh, legislation as it relates to mental health. And that was something mm-hmm. that now the late Speaker David Rawson really championed. And this became highlighted during the pandemic, a focus on mental health resources and needs for folks in our in our, in our nation. Uh, you all, in that regards, are you focusing on mm-hmm. youth as well? And because it seems to be that, from what I'm reading, there really needs to be a focus on youth. Yeah, that that is that is absolutely correct. And you know, you were hinting at shortages on your last segment, and that's certainly true in the mental health space as well. Um, you know, looking at issues like telehealth and how do we get access. Mm-hmm to people in rural areas of the state. We have specifically done some work uh, looking at reducing stigma Mm -hmm. amongst youth around mental health. So specifically looking at black and again, Latinx youth and how do we, you know, not make it embarrassing um, Mm -hmm. to take care of one's mental health. How do we make it just like taking care of one's physical health? But there there are huge gaps in availability of mental health services um, for youth as well as adults. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we know veterans across the state don't have access to treatment for you know PTSD, and mm-hmm. instead they they end up turning to alcohol or drugs, or worst case scenario, a gun. And you know we need to do better in terms of being able to take care of whole people, and we think we have the opportunity to do that. You all received an email from Mackenzie Scott's folks. If there are organizations out here who are listening to this right now, and they say, "Well, Rose, we don't know if we're going to get an email, <laughs> but we would like to get an email." How do folks get on your radar? So. I, I don't have a good answer to that. That is the one thing that they are very secretive about. And they are very good about saying, um, your gift is totally unrestricted. The one rule is that you don't hand out our email address or our phone number to anybody else. <laughs> well, how do so, folks get on your radar then? How do, how do folks, folks get, get on our radar? Yeah, yeah. so um, we have a Facebook presence, a LinkedIn presence, and also an email list. So I would encourage people to to follow us and join our email list. We'll start putting out opportunities to get to know us better, and we'll look forward to getting to know everybody else. And finally, uh, Christy Klein-Davis, why do you do this work? Oh, because it matters. Yeah. Because it matters. Um, You know, we have this amazing opportunity to actually make life better for people. Mm -hmm. Georgia, nine years in a row, number one state for business. Yet we have some of the worst health outcomes in the country, Mm -hmm. and we don't have to make that choice. We can be a great state. We can be a state where people thrive, where people have opportunity. And I believe the people in this state want that for their neighbors. They want that for their friends. They want that for their fellow Georgians. So I do the work and we do the work because we believe that's possible. And it's a it's a gift and a privilege to be part of trying to make that happen every day. 
mental health. You all, you also mentioned the maternal mortality rate. We know mm-hmm. that Georgia was one of the three states with the worst maternal mortality rate That's in right. this nation. And you all are going to hopefully ramp up resources for that. Where do you begin? I'm just curious as we wrap up, where do you begin with that? And, and with that, yeah. so with that, there are you know grassroots organizations, Black Mamas Matter Alliance. Mm-hmm. Many, I'm just naming the first one that comes to mind. Um, there's the I'm gonna the Maternal Health Equity Center. I think mm-hmm. that's what it's called at Morehouse. There are people all over this state that are doing excellent work. That is you know grassroots, grass tops, et cetera, around maternal mortality. But our rates remain horrifically low. In particular, mm-hmm. of course, for Black women that face four times. Um, the maternal mortality rates of white women. So the place to start there is to make sure we're creating spaces for all those groups to come together. So we're not working in silos. You know, again, so what's happening in Macon is known to what's happening in Rome, is known to what's happening in Bainbridge. How do we pull that all together? So that's step one. All right. President and CEO, Healthcare Georgia Foundation, Christy Klein-Davis. Thank you so much for taking the time. Congratulations on that $9 million gift from Mackenzie Scott. No relation to me, because if she was, I'd probably (laughs) be doing something else. Thank you also for the work that you all are doing to help so many Georgians. Well, thanks for having us. We appreciate it. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. He rides a bike. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And, of course, if you missed any of today's program, it's always online. Where else would it be? wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. A programming note, tomorrow we get to talk food for Turkey Day. Send me your best recipe. Stay tuned, 90.1 WABE, Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.